All right, everyone. We're here with Zach Hagney. Zach is the man behind The Trip Report. Um, the Trip Report is a super cool psychedelic newsletter that's supposed to help us understand what the future of psychedelic science, medicine, and spirituality might look like under the force of rapidly accelerating digital health technologies. Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me today. Yeah, I appreciate really it. Appreciate Thanks, it. Bro. Yeah, man. Really- so, you, dude, you, you, uh, you run like one of the coolest newsletters in the psychedelic space. Um, I've been reading it for a long time. I think a lot of people listening are probably pretty familiar with it. Um, but what is sort of like for people who are not familiar, what's sort of like the high level overview of what the trip report is and, you know, why did you decide to start writing it? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, it's always nice to hear that it's appreciated. Uh, so I, I, I mean, personally, I think that this, this space, this ecosystem, this industry, whatever we want to call it is, um, like the most fascinating area I could possibly think of, right? It's got so many um, subtopics that are just fascinating in their own right, whether that's neuroscience or pharmacology or the FDA approval process or indigenous wisdom or spirituality, right? Like it's, it's a really rich sort of sphere. And a few years ago, I recognized that this is going to be a thing, right? There was enough momentum in drug development in policy, um, in science that, um, I was like, Oh, this is, this is going to be a thing. And so, um, wanted to be involved. Um, wasn't sure how don't have any sort of skill sets that would lend themselves to being involved, like in science or a physician or anything like that. So I started a blog and, um, as you do, (laughs) um, and so it's, uh, it's really just my way of, uh, sharing what I learn because I think it's interesting and, um, and it's been resonating. So that's always, that's always nice to sort of have your work appreciated. Yeah. I mean, that's basically kind of what I did too, in a way, except I did the podcast media yeah. instead of the blog. And then it, you know, these things have a tendency to turn into something much bigger than what you initially planned for, what you start with. Um, yeah. you know, I ended up doing the fund and you now are, you know, what, what sort of happened now, now this is like a full-time business for you in a way, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it started as a, you know, labor of love. And for a time there at the beginning of COVID, um, I, I'm, I'm using a software called Substack. Um, or maybe yeah. by the time this gets released, I won't be, but um, which allows for for paid subscriptions. Right. And so I, I took a shot at um, writing, you know, three times a week, one for free, two for, for paying subscribers. And at the time, this was like, you know, before MindMed had gone public. It was in this sort of run up of like uh, a, a psychedelic conference every week, you know, over Zoom. Um, it was a very chaotic period. And, you know, you could argue it's still a very chaotic period. Um, so I did that for a while, um, had our second kid, went back to work and um, put it on hiatus for a bit. Um, started writing more sort of lengthier, deep dives into topics that were interesting to me uh, about a year or so ago. And, um, and most recently, uh, I've the trip report and, and I have been uh, acquired or acquired, you could say by, um, the, the venture studio arm of the Beckley foundation, which is Beckley waves, which is a real honor and humbling for, for me to sort of be, yeah. be working under the, the Beckley sort of name. Right. Cause that's, you know, I, I, I view Beckley and Amanda Fielding as the, shoulders upon which this this whole thing is standing so um yeah that's a real it's a real honor so 
Well, congrats, man. Well yeah, deserved, thank you. I think. Appreciate that. So <clears throat> you started off like you said in during COVID or right before? About... I started uh the first blog post was May 10th mm. of May um yeah, May 10th of 2019. And so this okay, was Okay, this so is, before. Yeah, so it was before COVID and and it was um I was itching to do something. I was writing about a kind of a bizarre, you know, esoteric area of 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 science before that um with a newsletter that i called good stress um wait uh, what's what part of science was that it's it's this idea of beneficial stressors right so okay there's there's this it's it's a term called hormesis it's it's kind of technically called like a biphasic dose response this is kind of like way into the weeds i suppose and people may not find this this is good i like the i like the weeds yeah so there's this phenomena in kind of really across all complex systems where a low dose of an otherwise harmful or or uh, damaging stressor is actually beneficial, right? So you can think about it. I, I think a, a clear uh, example is something like exercise, right? So sure. when you're when you're lifting weights, right, you're you're breaking down muscle, right? That's sort of and that is a stress, but it's at a it's at a low enough dose to whereby that breakdown turns on a lot of genes that are responsible for repair and rehabilitation and you know rebuilding that's why muscles get bigger stronger faster etc um and that that principle that idea um i think is um it's responsible for a lot of what we might call like old practices right that sort of especially healing practices from you know that are that are across time and space so fasting or sweat lodges or cold exposure or breathing techniques or these types of things phytochemistry and and maybe plant medicine not necessarily psychedelic plant medicine but like herbs and 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 such that have health promoting benefits i think a, a large portion of these things that are handed down by indigenous cultures um operate by this sort of low dose stress in order to make us stronger more resilient does that make sense yeah, it does. Right? And so you had a whole you had a whole blog about this concept of hormesis. Yeah. So basically. I yeah, yeah. I mean it was it was a, a labor of love again, sort of that I thought was yeah. like really interesting and I just couldn't get enough of it. Um and I should I should caveat this with like my my training and my career until six weeks ago was I as an acupuncturist, right? So I okay. I I practiced I well I still practice one day a week, but I practiced like this old form of of old healing modality that really doesn't fit into a scientific paradigm and i think there's a lot of share well a kind of quick footnote there's a lot of shared um themes and challenges with acupuncture science and psychedelic science i would say but i you know i'm from new jersey i was born in the 80s you know like i don't have this cultural sort of um lens through which to view something like Chinese medicine. And so I needed, yeah. I needed to find like, you know, the Rosetta stone, so to speak. And if you think about all of the things that we use in acupuncture and Chinese medicine, they operate by this principle of kind of a low dose stress, you know, that otherwise would be sort of harmful or, 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 or damaging, but at a low enough dose, namely like an acupuncture needle, um, there is this health promoting or beneficial, adaptive response that um so 
in order for me to like yeah. kind of like get the chip off my shoulder about practicing a an esoteric woo woo uh, thing, I needed to sort of like grip the scientific sort of um, rationale for it. So yeah, and that's also some. I mean, first of all, I think there probably are a lot of uh, ways that you could apply the concept of hormesis to what psychedelics do to the body, like they certainly can be like a considered a stressor on, you know, certain parts of the brain. Yeah. Um, but you're doing a very similar thing with psychedelics, right? You're taking a thing that, um, for many people is a very, uh, like not very grounded woo woo thing and trying to bring the science into it, which is what all the pharmaceutical companies are doing. Right. But like for the broad readership, like not everyone takes that approach and you're really trying to bring both ends of it together, which I think is really cool. Yeah. What, what do you think are some of the, like, for for the average reader that like stumbles upon your newsletter, what do you think the biggest surprise for them is? Like what 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 takes do you have that you think people read and like, wow, that's like something that I never really um, you know, had considered before? What and uh, what maybe another way to phrase this is like, what are your like big sort of themes and yeah. um angles from which you view and think about the psychedelics industry? So I would say that the the readership that I'm striving to sort of write for are fits into two categories. That that is uh, people like yourself and other operators, founders, investors who are sort of like really close to the space, really yeah, kind of working day in and day out. Whether that's at a drug development company or on policy reform or um, you know a, a startup trying to be a therapist, like. I think of I think of that cohort as like stakeholders in the psychedelic sort of emergence, right? Um, scientists, and then the other group would be people who are like industry onboarding people who have kind of heard the siren call of this emerging space and like want to be involved, um, and trying to help onboard them into what is like a really complex and nuanced and um, really like endlessly fascinating sort of domain that has a uh, like you know it's like the it's like the way i think about this sort of space just a quick caveat is like you know the the parable of the of the blind people and the elephant like one thinks it's a snake one thinks it's a tree one thinks it's a rock one thinks it's a leaf right depending on what part of contact they're coming in you know what part of the elephant they're coming in contact with and so i i'm trying to trying to feel up the elephant essentially and, 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 and sort of make it like, try to figure out what's going on. And in so doing help those two groups of people either kind of track news that they're just like unable to track because they're working on their project or want to find it like a foot, a, a foot in the door and a way to sort of, you know, work in this space. So to get back to your question of like, what are sort of interesting themes and topics like Again, it's it's endlessly rich. Um, I think yeah. the I think the tension. There's a lot of. I, I think you can kind of like plot these along like lines of tension, right? If you will. So I think that there's some. I think there's tension between sort of a drug development sort of mode like methodology or approach, and what you might call sort of like pol drug policy reform, um, and a and a spectrum of 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 opinions and pros and cons and trade offs along that spectrum um natural versus synthetic is another one um the 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 varieties of of compounds that we're talking about right like have affinity groups you might say or 
um, no. something like that. Um, therapeutic modalities, right? Like, you know, what, what I think is so interesting is that um, my understanding is that to date, a lot of the, like the psychedelic assisted therapy has been delivered in what might be called like a non-directive approach, right? So there's like, it, it's allowing what, what a, a person is sort of on experiencing to like unfold or, you know, i.e. non-directive, but there's a lot of different like therapeutic modalities that have a, an aim, right. Whether that's cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavior therapy or, you know, some other modality, right. Where, so that's another sort of, you know, line of tension, you might say with, pros content so wait so so just to make sure i understand you're saying that like right now generally uh you know the person takes the drug or the medicine or whatever they want to call it and then the trip kind of happens and there's not really much intervention from whoever's kind of you know around um maybe they talk about this stuff in like the integration session afterwards but you're talking about like during the trip there's not really any any direction or intervention you're saying that maybe there's a way that you can actually like do certain things during the actual trip experience that direct the outcome in some way i think yeah that's a good way of of thinking about it um and 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 i'm by no means an expert in you know i haven't been through you know uh the process myself or have training in it. So like, I'm sort of, this is, these are the sort of the, the nuggets that I've, I've picked up along my research. Um, but like, for example, I remember somebody using the acronym to describe like the, the training in maps, like therapist training of using weight. And, and it stood for, why am I talking now? Wait, why am I talking? Ooh, yeah. Wait. Why? Yeah. Uh, I see. And so it's sort of like this from the, th- the therapist. Yeah, why am I exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's just, really just again non-directive allowing sort of whatever is coming up to come up and then and so what i'm suggesting is that i and i think we're seeing this in some of the protocol designs from um robin carhart harris and adam ghazali at ucsf right where they're sort of i don't want to say imposing that has a negative valence but like they're 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 modifying the set and setting and sort of the the experiential component in such a way to like add a add a, add a component to it that could modify the, you know, that could be another input into what has to date been tried to be as inputless as possible. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, you were sort of talking about this like divide between, you know, modern uh, like medical techniques and sort of the, the ancient science and healing modalities and, you know, if you do like an ayahuasca ceremony or something, generally there are all sorts of inputs besides just the ayahuasca itself, right? Like when I did ayahuasca, there was, they were like lighting certain incenses on fire and like blowing the smoke in your face. They had like these weird little rattles and things like touching your head and like shaking yeah. things in your ears. So th- there are all sorts of ways that they sort of intervene. And um, you're right for the purposes of reducing the number of variables in the study, the uh, like clinical practices try and, you know, restrict as many of those things as possible. But yeah, yeah. In the long run, you would think that uh, this would become like more experiential. It already is experiential, right? right? But you, you don't you want to limit the experience. And uh, that means introducing more variables, which of course creates problems because then you can't right. really track what is causing what. But um, maybe that's not necessarily necessary. So one, one of the things that you talk about is like what psychedelics are kind of going to look like, not just now, but in the future. Do you think that th- this is like a pretty 
big trend that we'll, we will probably see, um, you know, five years from now, once psychedelic therapy becomes like a mainstream thing is uh, these sorts of interventions. Do you think there's a reason to think that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, if you think about, and I'm not a psychologist um, or a therapist, my mom is, so there's something in there. Right. Um, but the like practitioners or providers or, or, or therapists like sort of develop a, a, a framework or, a, you know, they, they kind of take in modalities, whether that's Freudian, Jungian or CBT or whatever the case may be. And so I think that the, you know, the combination of, of those in a clinical setting, in a, you know, in, in a controlled environment, that will be interesting to see. Um, and I, and I suppose like your point is well taken, like in the real, in the real world, like all of this is already happening, right? Whether yeah. that's like at a rave or a festival or burning man or an ayahuasca retreat or in your basement with music on, right? Like it's already happening. And so there's a lot of like, you know, hypo- there's a lot of hypotheses that are anecdotally sort of like agreed upon, you might say, right? Like the role of music, for example, um, and, um, or different drug combinations. But going back to, uh, you know, one idea is like, I think that, you know, an area that is interesting to me is, and, and a thread that I'm trying to pull on is what is the role of like technology in this particular instance, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, both, as a, as a means of like preparation, integration, tracking, um, there, there's a field of, of remote patient monitoring, patient recorded outcomes, like companion applications like that, that people have on their smartphones now that are, that is interfacing with psychology and, 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 and therapy, like writ large. Right. Um, and so how does that, how does something like that, how does that technology enable what you might call more naturalistic or real world research into these types of things that in a double blinded randomized controlled trial are not really applicable? You know what I mean? So yeah. um, I think that there's a big role for that. We'll probably see a lot more in that, in that context from, you know, as Oregon rolls out and other, you know, legal jurisdictions. So for sure. Yeah. I mean, technology is everywhere. I, I, it's very rare to see, you know, a pitch deck for a startup working in psychedelics that doesn't claim to have some mm-hmm. sort of app or digital therapeutics or digital yeah. phenotyping component. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of your recent newsletters was talking about the results of some study. I forget exactly which one it was, but I think it said something like uh, a worrisome percentage. I think it was 13% of the participants were harmed by psychedelic use and you sort of uh, throughout this idea that, you know, in the future, maybe there will be predictive models of patient outcomes and that you could use those predictive models to reduce the, um, you know, the people that are having the negative outcomes by not allowing them to participate in the first place. Yeah. Have you seen anything like that actually be created yet or any companies that are actually working on these sort of predictive models of how someone might respond to psychedelic therapy? Because I think that's super interesting. Not only could you predict if someone's going to have a bad outcome or not, but you could probably more usefully predict uh, yeah. what are the drugs and dosages and combinations of drugs that will, you know, maximize the likelihood of like the best possible outcome for the patient. Yeah. I, I, I haven't, to be honest, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relatively new concept to me. It was, 
uh, I was speaking with um, the 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 medical directors of Ozmine recently. I was interviewing mm-hmm. them, and and um, they had mentioned that this was sort of part of like the the approach of like introducing this idea of, and and I think it's more it's not just psychedelics, but sort of psychopharmacology, you know, across the board is like, it's really part of the challenge and part of like the drug pharmaceuticals, like flight from central nervous system and and mental health is that it's really hard to predict or understand who's going to respond to what drug. And so I think that this is a, uh, and, 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 and I suppose that there's like, you know, a way to sort of think about it, like genetics, like, you know, uh, um, specific polymorphisms that might sort of be uh, associated with uh, poor or good outcomes. That strikes me as like uh, maybe like too reductionistic because, you know, in a in mental health and, and mental illness, I would argue it has to be sort of viewed through like a, what's called a biopsychosocial context, right? So you have the biology, right? Genetics and sort of, um, uh, and what we call like proteomics and, and just these new areas of, of evaluating sort of what's happening at the biological level. Um, psychology, like, you know, what we might call sort of conventionally like patterns of thought, rumination, et cetera. Um, and then socially, like the, I can't, I, I am reluctant to sort of cite this, but the social determinants of health, right. Is this sort of acronym that's commonly used, especially in, um, you know, chronic disease, like metabolic disease and obesity and, and mm-hmm. mental, and mental, mental illness as well. It's like the environment that we're in is mismatched for our, you know, our genetic, you know, our yeah. evolutionary sort of like, optimization you might call it right like so there's a major mismatch there mismatch um and so that's a big factor and 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 so anyway i think what's happened is like that's such a huge factor that almost like to date psychopharmacology has been you know impotent against it right like it's so i i suppose you might say like part of the promise here is that the effect sizes with psychedelics are substantive enough that there's a there's a glimmer of hope, you know, that it could it, it's it, they're sufficient enough to push back against that larger uh, causative yeah, agent. The, you might say. The, the social there there was a lot there um, on on the genetic front. You're right; it's certainly not all genetic, and I think viewing it as such is probably overly reductionistic. Right. Um, but there are I know that there are some gene expressions that regulate things like uh, ketamine metabolism, for example. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. you, oh, if you have a genetic test for that, you can you can say like, well, this person might need more ketamine than the average person yeah. because they can metabolize the process very quickly, which. Yeah. So you can start there. And I know there are some companies that already offer genetic testing kits that will supposedly tell you you're going to respond well to this one or not. And. Of course, it doesn't. That's it's not the complete set of variables that yeah. determines the trip outcome, but it's a start. It's a um, start. But for I sure. think that the you know the social determinants of health thing, I agree, is like is very very important. It's also something that I don't really see discussed often, um, if at all, in the psychedelic space, which yeah. I think is unfortunate. Um, my take is that a lot of the you know mental health issues that people struggle with, especially things like just general anxiety, you know, things that don't necessarily have an underlying cause are probably caused by the fact that like 
half of Americans are, you know, like one bad thing happening to them away from like bankruptcy or not being able to pay rent or something. And it's like no amount of <laughs> ayahuasca is yeah. going to change that. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, I think a, a lot of those types of mental health issues can probably only be cause can only be fixed by, you know, changes to like the social safety net and the way that yeah. our society is set up. And until we change those things, um, you know, psychedelics for mental health might be just a thing for people that are, for lack of a better word, like upper middle class or, or rich mm -hmm. people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I would have you, are you aware of any initiatives like in the psychedelic space that are maybe more conscious of that social determinants of health um, component? Um, I, I think broadly, it's a really challenging issue to try and tackle like yeah. in a non-policy, anything other than just sort of like policy reform writ large. And, you know, the state of policy discussions is, you know, a bit of a cesspool, um, I, I yeah. think at the, at the moment. Right. So, um, uh, gosh, there's a company that I'm the name I'm, I'm alluded, I'm, I'm missing out. I, I can't, I can't think of it right now. Um, it's not psychedelic space, but it's sort of more, it, it's, it's trying to work a lot of company, a lot of like health tech companies are sort of trying to operate in this layer between like health insurance and employers and stuff like that. And this one yeah. is trying to operate in the, between like Medicare. And so like trying to mm. add value-based care, um, for patients who are on Medicare, I'm sorry, Medicaid, which is, Medicaid. You know, yeah, Medicaid, Medicare is for older folks. Medicaid is for, um, uh, people who can't afford healthcare or don't have it through the employer. Um, in the psychedelic space, I was just reading about actually just last week, I think it's HB five, three, five, three, nine, six. It's in Connecticut. It's a, it's a state reform sort of initiative that is actually pretty interesting in that they're proposing state funds, state sponsored funds to allow for, veterans, first responders, and underserved uh, members of the community, which I don't think they've defined yet, but trying to kind of tackle that that sort of idea of, of marginalized members of our society. Um, access through expanded access programs to MDMA and psilocybin. So it's, it's okay, really cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, I thought it was pretty interesting because there is a way to have to get MDMA assisted therapy now right through maps, which is called an expanded access program. And I believe USONA also has an expanded access program for psilocybin. And so mm. the steps to like do that though, I think are pretty cumbersome and it requires a, a physician to interface with the DEA. And so it's a little bit like what's going on in Canada with their, yeah. um, I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, it would, it would use state funds to allow for that until MDMA and psilocybin are, are FDA approved. So, Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Okay, I thought that was an interesting that. approach to, um, trying to galvanize access to these for populations that, um, would probably not have access to them because of insurance reimbursement purpose aren't eligible for, for clinical trials, but who would in a, in a, in a, you know, upon approval probably be good candidates you might say for 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 that so that's something that's pretty interesting in my 
That makes sense. And it's a policy what? thing, right? It's 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 not a commercial, it's a it's a policy reform type of move. Right. So yeah. On this is sort of along the same lines of, you know, expanded access. Do you think that in the long term we will see the majority of psychedelic therapy take place at clinics or in people's homes? Right now, because of COVID, you know, there's the Ryan Haidt Act was temporarily suspended and there's all these like online ketamine providers. Do you think that is the direction that the industry is going? Or do you think that people will show up to these, you know, retreat centers and clinics and there will be a ketamine clinic on every corner? Uh, just like there's yeah. a Starbucks or maybe Starbucks will offer ketamine. I'm not sure. What, what do you, what do you think? What do you, what do you think the future looks like? Ketamine infused latte with, with an extra ketamine shot. Uh, uh, gosh, what a, what a dystopic nightmare that is. Um, I, I don't know, you know, like I try to any, this is, I feel like I try to run the sort of the, the, um, the, the simulation into the future. And every time I do it, it's a different, you know, outcome. Um, yeah. Because there's so many different, you know, I don't want to say competing, but there's, it, it's really like an ecologically diverse thing, which makes it so interesting, right? You have state reform matters like the kind in, in Connecticut that I just talked about or Oregon. You have um, what might even be called more grassroots with like decrim nature to try and decriminalize the possession of and the, and, and the, the consumption of, of plant medicines in. So it, those two things will probably continue to gain steam. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, I wrote about this idea that I think there's going to be a certain amount of, um, regulatory leakage and, and, and in the way that cannabis, cannabis regulatory leakage is like the black market to procure your cannabis is, you know, still alive and well and growing right. As a result of legalization, um, I think that there's going to, maybe I'll be, I, I just got pushed back on this idea recently, but, um, the, the idea that it'll be easier for therapists who want to use these compounds in therapy, it'll be easier for them to do so in gray, gray markets rather than uh-huh. like in their private practice because of like the DEA considerations, the risk evaluate, uh, risk mitigation strategies, like the things that we can expect from pharmaceutical psychedelics, like it's going to be buttoned up pretty tightly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess this is a long winded way. I'm sorry. I'm a rambler. That's why I write a newsletter and not like a podcast because right. I, no, I no, just can't cool. stop talking um, is um, I think we'll see it all right. We already see it all. We see, we see, you know, never, you know, this is kind of going into this idea of, you know, this inversion of the drug development you know, process where these compounds, these molecules, these experiences are already alive and well, you know, are, are being used in, in the culture writ large. Right. So, right. um, I, I actually, what was the, you said you got pushback on that idea. What was sort of the pushback? Oh, the pushback is I, I, I have some thoughts that I want yeah, to share, but I want to um, hear the pushback first. It was, uh, that I'm the, the community of therapists is more risk averse than I'm, than I'm giving them credit. Uh, I don't want to say giving them credit for, but like, right. So th- they don't want to break the law. Basically, They don't want to break the so law. They could lose their license. They could go to jail. Right. But, and, and, yeah. and so I, I, it recalibrated my sort of thinking that like a, a gray area, like Detroit recently sort of decriminalized these things or, or Oakland, right. 
there'll probably be a sufficient, you know, a good amount of opportunity to undergo psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, I had over indexed on individual therapists risk appetite, I suppose. Yeah. 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 But, but that, I guess that assumes that, um, you know, everyone that's conducting these things are actual therapists. Right. And True. one of the interesting things that I've sort of discovered when I've kind of looked at the, the underground world is that a lot of these people, um, they probably in many ways are more qualified than like actual licensed therapists because they've been doing this for so long, but they kind of don't want to get licensed by the actual licensing bodies because it restricts them in so many ways. Obviously it restricts them from actually using psychedelics, but it also restricts them from doing things like, you know, touching the patient or like, you know, doing like somatic type things, which yeah. can be very, very helpful during the course of a psychedelic trip. But right. Right, you know, normally therapists are not supposed to like touch yeah. the patients. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, man. You you got to wonder if like the types of therapists that are going to be interested in this sort of thing are actually the ones that are licensed and want to be, um, you know, playing by the rules. It's it's kind of hard for me to imagine that a bunch of you know traditional therapists that up until today have never once like touched psychedelics are all of a sudden going to be lining up to like give True. psychedelics to their patients. Yeah. I think it's more like the people that have already kind of been doing it on the down yeah. low are going to become leaders. I could be totally wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, again, like it's, it's tough to sort of make sense of, of such a unquantified and sort of, you know, uh, underground type of scenario. Um, yeah. But also with like drug policy and commercialization, you know, it, it's, I mean, this is what makes it so interesting, right? Is like, who knows what's going to happen? Um, yeah. So. No one knows. <laughs> this is why, this is why we read the trip report. Okay. So an another interesting theme that we've sort of talked about is this idea of uh, the inversion of the traditional biopharma yeah. model. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I don't know how, yeah. So the idea is that, you know, if you take a, a, a traditional molecule candidate, drug development candidate that, uh, a pharmaceutical or a biotech or a professor, you know, at a university has sort of like identified as being, um, you know, possibly useful in a, in a therapeutic context, it's, it goes through a drug development process that takes years and um, ultimately it ends up, if it's successful, ends up as a, as a, as commercialized and a doctor can write a prescription for it. Up until that point of commercialization, the only people that have ever taken this particular, you know, molecule will be people in the clinical trials. Right. And so the, the sample size is really small. Um, and a lot is left to be learned in the aftermath of, of commercialization. And that's a process that's usually called like phase four or post-marketing surveillance. It uses tools like pragmatic clinical trials and, and real world, you know, data from medical records and, and insurance claims, et cetera, to sort of like elucidate more information about this particular COVID that's not covered in the phase two and three trials, right? Mm -hmm. With psychedelics, you know, and um, and I suppose cannabis was in, is another example of this. Um, but there really, there was only like one or two true pharmaceutical plays in cannabis. Um, that that's not the case, right? There's retreats. There's like we were saying underground use. There's 
personal mystical you know people in their in the woods and kids and it's just it's in the culture it's already widely um in play and so it's almost like there's a capacity or a potential to conduct you know post approval research post approval style research prior to approval does that make sense right so like the kind yeah. of like inferences that you would draw when a drug goes into the population into the community um that that that's happening now granted it's illegal in most places and granted it's not mm-hmm. under the jurisdiction of a or the 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 administration of a of a of a licensed physician um but to the point you know the the thing that i sort of thought was interesting and this is coming from a paper from Carhart Harris and Ghazali and 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 a few others about pragmatic clinical trials. So this is not an original idea. This is you know theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like we're all walking around with supercomputers in our pockets, and the capacity to glean insight in this in this context should be evaluated and should be looked at, and it's potentially really interesting to see. And so um, yeah. That's what I mean by sort of the, this inversion of the drug development process. Um, and so this is things like naturalistic research, po- retrospective surveys of, 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 of psychedelic experiences. Um, when people like write trip, the evaluation of trip reports on, you know, from Arrowhead or something like that. That's a really cool mm-hmm. area. I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around right now. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, so there's there's this whole idea of we've basically been running the clinical trial, at least on psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and mushrooms for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years in some cases, right? Right. Yeah. And so at least we ha- at least we have the safety data. We have like tons of anecdotal evidence. Yeah. And th- this actually kind of brings up an interesting question. Um, personally, I am very excited by the concept of novel psychedelic molecules mm-hmm. because I, I think about the fact that, you know, some of the best drugs in the world. LSD, ketamine, MDMA, they were all invented by humans before we had computers and the modern understanding of the brain. So I'm like, what kind of stuff could we create now? But with those novel molecules, you don't get those hundreds of years worth of, you know, experiential reports Mm -hmm. and safety data that we've had. So uh, what is your sort of take on the continued dominance of the classical psychedelics versus, oh, well, we're going to create new things and obviously new is going to be better. Like what in the long run, what do you think most of these therapists are going to be using? Are they going to be using psilocybin and MDMA or they're going to be use, using something new that we've never even heard of yet? Um, by long run, do you mean 500 years from now? Do we mean 30 uh, let's, years from let, now? Let, let's at least stick to the times that we're still alive. So let, let, let's say maybe how hey about man, 10 you never years know. from now? Yeah. Okay. Um, Longe- we'll get to the longevity component <laughs> next. Um, again, it, I think it's tough to say. I think that there'll be, um, I, I, I think that the, cl- my, my gut is like, I, here, here's here, I guess this is a way I think about it. Um, I have not been just sort of like instinctively drawn to really diving into like the, the novel analogs and the, that, as much as I am about the, what does the infrastructure and the deliverability and the, the set and setting. And so my interest is in like the next five to 10 years and sort of solving for like the challenges of, of onboarding psychedelics into the healthcare system of onboarding 
the culture and mainstream adoption, like it's going to be a shit show. It already is a shit show in, in a lot of respects. So I guess my, my sense is like, there will be the, the, the novel, the novel sort of maybe eat just brand new molecules and, and analogs, mm. um, for sure. Um, that have to kind of start from ground zero right now in a drug development context. Right. So yeah. that's a seven to 10 year timeline. Um, sure. Whereas MDMA is, is, is purportedly slated for the end of next year, approval rollout in early 2024 compass pathways, psilocybin shortly thereafter, USONA be more, maybe slightly thereafter. So like, I think that in, in the medical context, that's like the, that's the big game for the, for the near term. Um, but you know, who knows? Like, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, yeah, I mean, you, you're doing the pragmatic thing, which is focusing on the infrastructure side of things. Um, what do you think th there's sort of this challenge with the infrastructure, uh, at least from an investing perspective and business perspective in that some of the most critical components of infrastructure, like the clinical setting, um, the therapists, these are not really things that are like venture scalable, you know, in the way mm -hmm. that investors like to think about that. Um, do you think this poses a challenge for funding? Do you think this means that like the infrastructure side of things will be like underfunded or do you think that people don't really care about the scalability and just want to put money into this because it's cool and psychedelic? Um, I, 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 I don't know how to think about that. Um, I suppose like, you know, uh, a doctor, right. Who wants to, you know, has ended their residency and wants to start a clinic. Where does that physician get money from? Right. Like, is that, that's not yeah. a VC that's, you know, they're not right, going to right. Andreessen Horowitz or, or, you know, to, to this, they're going to a bank. Right. And so, mm -hmm. or they're, they've got family money or, or whatever. So I guess my sense is like, there's a lot like venture capital is like very, in vogue to sort of talk about um and is of the the zeitgeist you might say um yeah but i also think in the scheme of things and, and i could be wrong but like it, it actually makes up a pretty small percentage of total you know um capital allocation you know globally yeah. venture venture yeah venture capital is a small percentage of yeah. total global capital allocation you're right yeah there, and there are plenty there are plenty of people that will lend money to those doctors but yeah. getting on the, on the vc thing i know you wrote about mind state design which is a yeah. company that i invested in and uh in your piece you talked about how a lot of the investors are not necessarily uh like biotech investors they're people mm. like gary tan who is like kind of famous mm -hmm. because he backed coinbase and yeah. uh you talked about andreessen mark andreessen is one of the investors in my fund does sort of the silicon valleyization of psychedelics is that something that worries you or is it something that you think is overhyped like a, a lot of people talk about it as if it's this um impending threat that is like for sure going to happen like what, what's sort of your take mm -hmm. on that do you think that those people that are our current tech overlords will end up being the overlords of the psychedelics industry? Um, I'm, how do I think about that? Well, I think, I think that narrative, um, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but that narrative Please. feels like overwrought, right? It's sort of like a kind of a, 
you know, it seems like a convention, like an easy sort of like thing to like kind of frame what's going on. And right. it's, it's, a re- it's like a reactionary take, right? It's, it's like a, a Silicon Valley take. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it, to the, to that degree, but it's not to say that that's not happening. It's not to say that there's not trade-offs and externalities from like venture scale, you know, the, the, that process. Um, I just think, I mean, without, yeah, I just think there's probably an inflection point where, you know, East coast media, which kind of drives the conversation pivoted from a pro tech to an anti tech position in the last mm-hmm. five or six years. And that is we're in the, we're in the wake of that. And so that I think has a lot to do with it. Um, that narrative. Right. So that's that. Is, and that is like unrelated to psychedelics. I think that's just, you know, um, but going back to this idea, like, um, you know, a venture scale business goes to a bazillion or it goes to zero. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, um, I, I, I think like in the clinical, I, I, I think there's not a lot of other than drug development, right. Um, maybe some ancillary technologies. Um, a lot of this is going to require patient capital, right? And that's a term that I don't know how to like fully articulate, but maybe it's from family, you know, offices and people who are invested in it. It's philanthropic. Um, it's not merely, you know, super juiced VC money. Um, and I think you yeah. see that, right? I think there's a lot of, I, th- I think there's a lot of, of, of funds and people who are contributing to this space, both philanthropically and, and from a a venture perspective. Um, and what strikes me as like in interesting kind of unique ways and, and and it's above my pay grade to really sort of understand that. But, um, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't kind of, I don't spend much time sort of lamenting that as much as I think is the, the, the narrative is sort of like foisted. Upon That's probably us. A, a healthy to spend less time worrying about that. Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. So, so looking forward, you know, five to 10 years right now, psychedelics are generally thought of as the next generation treatment for mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, and, you know, PTSD. What are some of the other, you know, indications that you think psychedelics will eventually be used for? outside of those classic mental health indications. Do you, do you think that there's a world in which they do broaden out into the types of things they treat or do they stay focused on those, you know, mental health issues? Um, uh, I, I think there'll be pretty broad applications, right? Like, so yeah. I just wrote about this. There's two papers that came out with it, one last week and one a few months ago um, about the potential in in health behavior change. So like, Mm. and you could sort of put this in the mental health category, right? Like alcohol use disorders, substance use disorders are sort of in the behavioral health sort of sphere. And if we think about psychedelics as like trans diagnostic tools that kind of, kind of get to this like foundational layer of depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, like there, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a common ground there. And, and so if the modality and the approach psychedelics combined with psychotherapy combined with, you know, integration, these things, I think it's pretty broad, right? Like, and so, um, I, I can't, I would, 
to feel like, uh, you know, psychedelics for weight loss strikes me as like a real, you know, jumping the shark kind of thing. But psychedelics as a psychedelic assisted therapy, psychedelic assisted therapy in the, again, sort of with the goal, right? This is sort of, sort of like different than non-directive sort of therapy with the goal of like modifying one's relationship to food or to mm-hmm. physical activity or to um, social anxiety or, you know, these kinds of things. So like in the modulation of patterns that are, you know, related to, but not defined as mental health disorders. Like I think there's a, there there for sure. I just tweeted the other day, like, is there any research being done on psychedelics and skill acquisition? Um, yes. Accelerated learning, skill acquisition, super yeah. interesting area. Yeah. Right. So, if, I mean, just like, so, so this is kind of going into this area where I think there's some interface between, um, you know, older forms of therapy that sort of modulate the system with, you know, low dose stressors, which you could sort of argue is like, that's how learning happens, right? You sort of interpret that's how you learn, right? You, you kind of, you fumble around, you, you, you screw up, you tax your, your, you know, in, in the case of like, I don't know, catching a ball, right? Like I'm trying to teach my kid how to, how to catch now. Um, it's like he, he has to get the ball hit in his face like a bunch of times until, yeah and so, yeah. so there's like a learning that happens. And if so, if you, if what happens if you come, and I'm not saying don't take your four-year-olds and like give them psilocybin, but like, Later in life with, you know, uh, motor system disorders, um, is there a role for something like that? And I, and I, and, and like, it seems like the physiology would, would, would say yes. Right. Yeah. When you talk about motor system disorders, I've seen, um, people use sort of these like electro stimulation devices that, you know, they like run an electrical current over your tongue, which makes its way to the brain somehow and use that to, you know, regain motor function after, you know, a stroke or mm-hmm. you know, cerebral palsy or things. Yeah. You've got to imagine that psychedelics could do a similar thing. Yeah. And then moving from like the healthcare to more the human optimization thing, you've got to wonder like what happens if you try to learn a new language while microdosing yeah. or something yeah. like that. Right. You, totally. You, it's very interesting. And, um, I don't know. What, real sure quickly, CIA, like I'm sure the CIA is running that experiment somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's sort of like where this this domain of like behavior change or behavior modification kind of runs into a, a, a dark history. And, you know, there's got to be like, you know, HIPAA compliance or sort of the, you know, above board, you know, uh, incentives in place to protect it for sure. Um, I was just going to say another area that's is chronic pain that I'm I, I think is like really interesting. Um, that's been, you know, my, my acupuncture practice has mostly dealt with musculoskeletal pain. Often it's chronic, long lasting. And I think about chronic pain. So I should say that there's a trial that's getting ready to start right now with um, at UC San Diego for phantom limb pain, with hmm. psilocybin for phantom limb pain. Um, there was a case study of that that you could probably find at their website that was like really interesting about a professor who lost a limb in a motorcycle accident and like drove out to you know Joshua Tree took mushrooms and did something called mirror box therapy which is a form of physical therapy that's like kind of interfaces at the neuro uh, neurological level and you know he got he got pain relief from it so I think that's an area where anywhere you can like modulate 
I, I mean, I don't know where it, you know, neuroplasticity is such a buzzy term. It's like, it simultaneously like applies to everything, right? Like there's, there's going to be a neuroplastic changes in both of our minds as a result of this conversation because like, the memory is <laughs> right. formed of it. So like on the one hand, it's like, it, it, it's used to sort of, you know, describe everything as, as potentially therapeutic. Um, but on the other hand, it's actually like a very, you know, promising, you know, if we can kind of harness it, then it's really promising. Right. So, um, right. And, but yeah, you got to be careful. People throw around the term, you know, way too loosely and it yeah. definitely kind of veers off into, you know, bullshit snake oil territory, despite the fact that it's very real. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, the skill acquisition stuff is, is very, very interesting. Um, I've personally like expert sort of run some small experiments with that on myself and want to do more. Um, and this actually touches on one of the first things we talked about, which is interventions during the actual trip. So I've sort of had this idea of wanting to sort of record myself saying like certain things, like almost like mantras or like, mm -hmm. you are going to do this or you're going to be better at that. And like, listen to that while doing a hydros trip. Haven't run that experiment yet. We'll let you know <laughs> how, how it goes. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I feel like is, will either be very interesting or will make me go totally insane. You know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure. So lots of interesting, like almost non-medical potential experiments that could yeah. be run on this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that I, I mean, you know, I, in, in, um, as I was making this sort of transition from, you know, writing about, uh, you know, hormesis and good stress into, and even before I had the idea of, of psychedelics, I thought, <clears throat> you know, I was, I was thinking back on my, you know, I played soccer growing up and into college and, um, I have a lot of regret about feeling like I, I didn't sort of maximize my potential in that, in that sort of context. Right. And like, it was all, I mean, as a result of sort of like being in my own head, right. Being sort of too cerebral to allow myself to sort of play at, at, a, at an optimal level. And so, and I, and when I watch, like, you know, I, I really enjoy watching soccer. And if I see somebody who's just like kind of tight and can't really get into and like habitually forms into that, I, I wonder if there's like a way of unlocking that through, you know, the, the psychedelic experience that's not, again, it's not mental health and it's not like TBI, it's not a therapy, but it's like, okay, is there, is there, a, how is, how is this person stuck? Right. And then is there a, a, a psychedelic yeah, assisted sports psychology? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I feel that. There you go. Um, one of the other th interesting things you talked about was this, you know, chronic pain and how psychedelics might be able to treat that. It is amazing how much pain can be mental. One, one of my good friends uh, up until recently was the head data scientist at a company called Applied VR, which is, mm -hmm. at least as far as I know, like the first company that got FDA approval to yeah. use virtual reality to treat chronic pain. Yeah. And it's like, it's not, you know, a drug that they're putting in someone. They're literally yeah. strapping an Oculus to someone, yeah. showing them some certain visualizations, and all of a sudden the pain is like actually reduced, which is kind yeah. of insane. Yeah, when you think about it. So yeah, combining that VR plus psychedelics plus maybe some actual pain relief, you know, drugs, you could probably get rid of a lot of those issues. It's very interesting well, stuff. You know, it, on on that topic, like there is a there's a branch of pain science that's called like therapeutic uh, pain science education. Right. And so there's a, a, uh, and, and it's really promising in terms of like the results and, and all it is, is educating people who are living with chronic pain 
I, I would say educating is half of it. It's like uprooting and sort of correcting the conceptualization of 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 people sort of so it's not in the mind it's not like you're it's not all in your head it's like it's in the nervous system but like part of the nervous system is like the priors and the concepts and the way we understand like what's going on in our body and when people get an a revised or as a an evidence base like actually like how things work as opposed to like what they think is going on, which are usually wrong, right? The models that we uh-huh. have about what's going on in our body, especially physically is usually wrong. It actually is like, it's like a really, it's a profound treatment and it can be very useful. And, and so it's like updating our, our priors, our concepts, our beliefs about what is happening. And I think that that lends itself to, so that's a format that I would say lends itself to psychedelic assisted pain relief, you might say, right? And so it's not as an anti-inflammatory, it's not as like healing something, but it's as modulating patterns of belief and behavior based on conceptualization that is actually uh, harmful. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super interesting stuff. It's super interesting. um, yeah, modulating, providing new information. It's um, it's what you're doing with the newsletter, and it's it's what um, it, it's what we're doing every time we take psychedelics. Man, well, dude, this has been great. I think we're pretty much you know kind of at time. Uh, where can people follow you if they want to you know learn more about you and you know read the trip report? Yeah, so the the newsletter is called the trip report. Um, like I said, it's uh, I, I've partnered up with the team at Beckley Waves, the the venture studio. Um, branch of, of the Beckley Foundation. So we're going to be launching the, the the trip report by Beckley Waves in the next couple of weeks. It should be up by the time this comes out. Um, I don't know what the URL will be quite yet, uh, to be honest. <laughs> okay. with you, but for right now, well, uh, yeah, if you do, if you, if you have a search for this trip report, usually it's, it's, it comes up. So. Hell yeah. And do you have Twitter or anything like that where people can follow you? What's your, yeah, what's your Twitter I, handle? I go in and out of, uh, peaks and valleys of Twitter activity. It's Zach underscore Hegney at, at, uh, yeah, that's awesome. It. All right. Well, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and talk with us today. I uh, really appreciate it and look forward to having you coming back soon. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Have a great one, man. You too.